Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. Okay, DIY theology then. Now, I think um, I better make clear... um, Certain people who will remain nameless have thought that DIY theology is going to mean putting together a rickety tin pot theology, sort of thing you nail together on a Saturday afternoon and falls down on a Monday morning. It is just do-it-yourself. No other connotations of being rubbish are implied. Okay, so DIY theology. And basically what we'll try to do is I'll try to introduce us to the theme now before lunch, and then we should have a little bit of time to be able to discuss it and think through things after that, if that sounds okay. Okay? So, DIY theology, and first of all, massive congratulations for walking through this door, because theology does not have a good name in this country, I think, or in this age as a whole, Um, and I think it's because there's this story in people's minds that theology is what they did in the dark and gloomy days when monks would, uh, you know, eat their gruel and then discuss these weird things in their cloisters uh, and think about things like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But now, because we've got real faith in Jesus, we ditch all that and just go for worship and evangelism, the fun stuff. And the thing is, there is some truth to that story. In days of yore, people really did hang around and discuss such things as whether motherless Adam would have had a belly button or not. Um, And people would seriously would spend days discussing such issues on that one, divided into the fierce rival camps of the pre-umbilicists, the mid-umbilicists, and the post-umbilicists. I kid you not. Not to mention the innies versus outies debate. So, but the thing was, it wasn't just the lunatic academic fringe. Check this out. Um, it comes from, we're going to meet him a lot more um, this, uh, this week, the great 4th century theologian Gregory of Nyssa. Don't be off put by the name. Gregory of Nyssa. Here's what he said. He just moved into the capital city of Constantinople, and Nyssa wrote this. He said, the whole city, Constantinople, is full of it. The squares... The marketplaces, the crossroads, the old clothesmen, money changers, food sellers, they are all busy arguing. If you ask for change, they want to talk to you about who in the Trinity is begotten and who unbegotten. If you inquire about the price of a loaf of bread, the answer is the father is greater and the son inferior. If you ask, is my bath ready? The attendant answers, the son was made out of nothing. Do you agree? And, you know, what, what you find is, I, I read, um, last year, I read a little history of Constantinople, well, a little three-volume history of Constantinople, and what you find, if, if there's a recurring theme through it, apart from emperors killing their sisters and then marrying them, no, other way around, um, <laughs> what you find again and again is you see riots taking place in Constantinople, like every few months, literally, riots taking place in Constantinople, as people get all uppity about theological issues, and often pretty technical theological issues. So you'd have mobs going through the street with torches, chanting these theological slogans. You know, so they go through the street chanting, one person, two wills, one person, two wills, because, you know, some bishop had said that, you know, Christ doesn't have two wills. We don't even know what they're talking about, and yet they're actually burning the city because they're so angry about it. And that's because nobody cares about theology like that anymore. But that's how it was. Theology was the queen of the sciences. So universities were then theology faculties. And all the other departments that we work with these days, they were just then little annexes of the big and central discipline that was theology, or divinity, as it used to get called. And the kids, of course, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a theologian, of course. You know, that's what they'd all want to be. They were the fighter pilots of the day. You know, that was the cool profession. Now, to me, you know, that seems a sane and happy world. Um, But 
you know, well, of course, the good thing about it, not only higher pay, but theology there is about all of life. You know, it's not some specialist discipline. It's something that everybody does, you know, as they go to the market. Um, but, as you know, that is not the way things are now. Theology's fallen on hard times. People want produce. You just look at what courses are increasingly on offer in the universities, and increasingly they're practical vocational disciplines, because people want produce. And so theology has become, at best, um, the scullery maid of the sciences, something despised and rejected by men, no longer the great queen. So what we want to do in our little time together now, in this training track, is we want to blow that myth out of the water and to help us enjoy theology as an everyday part, not, not, not of being a staff worker or whatever, but just of being a Christian. To enjoy theology is an everyday part of being a Christian. And who knows, maybe we can get that good Constantinopolitan tradition going again. We'll go in to Market Harbour and start burning things <laughs> because we're so angry at what the vicar has just said about the person of Christ. Um, you know, so UCCF, the militant wing of theology. What we want to do is we want to see what theology really is. Um, we want to dump the myth and get into the real thing. Now, the way that's going to work is a bit of a tease for today, I'm afraid. Basically, today, we just get to stand outside the sweetie shop looking in. Um, And we're going to see what theology really is, um, and that we can have confidence to actually do it. We're going to see those things today. But then, tomorrow and Thursday is where we actually start really doing theology. So, sorry, if if you're coming for Trinity... Tomorrow and Thursday are the real days we're going to you know, get stuck into that. So today we just stand outside the shop looking at all the nice little jars and what we could do as we enter the shop. Tomorrow we go in and gorge ourselves on the tastiest jar on the shelf, the Trinity. So, okay, that's the agenda. So today's a little introduction to theology generally and how to do it. Wednesday, Thursday, we just dig in and gorge ourselves on the Trinity. All right? So... If theology is not about monks arguing over dusty tomes, what is it? Well, I think the most obvious answer given to that in the Bible is Judges 6. So we have a look at Judges 6. Here's the place I think you just instinctively turn to in your answer to what is theology. Judges 6. Now, um, you remember the story, Judges 6. Gideon meets the angel of the Lord... Um, and he doesn't die. So, verse 24, he doesn't die, so verse 24, Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it the Lord is peace, because well, he didn't die. To this day it sounds, you'll be glad to know, an offer of the Abiezrites. That same night, the Lord said to him, Now, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he was a bit chicken, he did it at night rather than the daytime. So... In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. Now, okay, be honest. Don't you read that and you go, what a laugh. You know, lopping down Asherah poles, smashing up altars. You think, you know, do that today, you get an asbo. But Gideon's told to do it. You think, how cool, oh, to be Gideon. You can't be. That is theology. Theology is smashing up idols. Smashing up the idols in our minds and in our world. That's it. Right old laugh. So, uh, and replacing them, not just smashing them up, but replacing them with verse 26, proper kinds of altars to the Lord our God. Replacing them all with Jesus Christ. So, the story here is, Gideon is surrounded by the idolatry of the Midianite regime. And he begins the revolution against it by bulldozing Baal. 
that is theology. It's not just reading books, studying languages, whatever. It is about rebelling against the world order, not just the Midianites' little regime. Rebelling against the whole world order as it rebels against God. Rebelling against it, bringing down the system, utterly replacing it, that is theology. Theology is the revolution. Now, just possibly you're thinking, yeah, right, overexcited geek with delusions of relevance. Um, But I want to prove it to you. Theology really is the one true revolution. I'm going to prove it to you. Here is what the great 20th century Swiss theologian Karl Barth said. He said, Mike is right. Theology is the one true revolution. He didn't say that. He said, there is no man or woman who does not have his own God or gods as the object of his highest desire and trust or as the basis of his deepest loyalty and commitment. There is no one, no one, who is not, to this extent, also a theologian. So, according to Bart, to be human is to be a theologian because everyone thinks about the object of their highest desire. Everyone Um, has the object of their deepest feeling. Everyone has a God, so everyone does their own theology. And you could even say, uh, they'd hate this if you said it, you could even say that the atheistic, logical positivists are theologians. They'd hate the phrase, but you could say, no, they are theologians. It's just they worship and study a different logos to the Christian theologians. They are logical positivists in a different way. They have a different logos um, to the Christian theologian. And this is where the revolution's needed because everyone lives on their basis of reality, how they take reality to be. Okay? But as Christians, we know that all our perceptions are going to be wrong unless they're shaped and informed by God's revelation of how things really are. So Christian theology comes in as the true research, as we research reality afresh in the light of how God has revealed it to be, as we um, see truth and then see how that shapes reality. So Christian theology is about clearing out all the junk in our minds that we've accumulated through years of just listening to the world. Um, and, and, and replacing it with truth. It's putting on the mind of Christ and so sifting out the lies in our culture. It's, um, it's washing our brains, isn't it? Uh, rather than being brainwashed by the mediator. Uh, but, right, no, it's washing our brains with the mediator. How about that? Rather than being brainwashed by the media. That just came to me. Poetic, huh? Um, so, you know, it's not believing all that Hollywood rubbish about, you know, that we need to believe in ourselves, search for the hero within, have self-confidence, you know, be true to ourselves, all that kind of stuff. It's walking through life with a torch on. So it's refusing to drift with the zeitgeist. Our, our zeitgeist, I think, is most properly called a polterzeitgeist. He's so noisy and erratic. We do not follow our polterzeitgeist. Um, we go with Christian theology. And that's why doing Christian theology is the only truly revolutionary act, because it is about rebelling against the whole world and the whole world order as it is. Um, so theology is revolting. So what we'll do, let's take a little step back and just think about what theology is then. Okay. Theology is a logos, a logic, about a theos, a God. All right? It's a, a logos, a logic, about a theos, a God. So, theology can be the study of any number of gods. But Christian theology is going to be about knowing the true and living God as he makes himself known through his logos, his word, Jesus Christ. And what we learn from Jesus Christ is that the whole world is in captivity to false logoi, false words, and false gods, false theoi. So the whole world does theology, but it does false, perverse theology. And true theology, knowing the true logos, the true word of the true theos, the true God, just means 
that that is the only way in which the cruel dictatorship of the gods can be ended, with true theology. So to do true theology is to join the revolution. And that's why, you you ever hear someone say, oh, you know, I'm not a theologian. We're going to go, no, of course you are. You're human, aren't you? So you are a theologian. So we're never going to believe it when someone says that, because everyone is a theologian. And claiming that they're not a theologian, we're just thinking, ah, so you're not really bothering to think anything then. So if you're claiming you're not a theologian, basically you're probably just soaking up any rankled theology that the society bathes you in. You're just not thinking. So to say they're not a theologian basically means they're not bothered to think reality through. They are a bad theologian. Um, And we really worry if Christians say that they're not theologians. Because what are they saying? If a Christian says they're not a theologian, what are they saying? Well, they can't be bothered to study God's word. Then They're not interested in thinking through the things of the gospel. That's what theology is. So no, the healthy Christian does plenty of theology. And so what we see is that everyone is a theologian, and so Being a Christian means being a Christian theologian, replacing the dominating lies of our culture with life and health and freedom-giving truth. So the question to ask any Christian is not going to be, so are you a theologian then? Of course they are. The question we want to ask is, are they a good theologian or a bad theologian? And Because by that we're not saying, so, all right, can you... Tell me the Chalcedonian definition then. Or can you parse this difficult Greek word? Or can you memorize the order of the chapters in Calvin's Institutes? You know, we're not just not asking that kind of question. If we're saying, is someone a good theologian? We're not asking about their intellectual ability. Nothing of the sort. Because a person's strength of intelligence is no guarantee of their theological accuracy whatsoever. Um, if someone is incredibly bright, but their intelligence is not harnessed to faith in Christ, well, their intelligence is just going to be a massive liability. Um, Christian theology is, have you come across old Anselm in the 11th century? He was Archbishop of Canterbury, probably one of the best. In the 11th century, he famously said, Christian theology is faith-seeking understanding. So faith-seeking understanding. Um, and it's usually taken to be like, that's the definition of good theology, faith-seeking understanding. And that means, if that's right, the only qualification for being a good theologian is faith in Jesus Christ, the revealing word. That's it. So are you a good theologian? Do you trust in Jesus Christ? So to be a good theologian is to seek to know and rely upon the word of God better. It is to be a faithful Christian. And the only way for real change to happen in the sick world of ours and in these sick hearts of ours is for theology to unearth and replace all our presuppositions and assumptions about how reality is. That's how we get to turn the world upside down, like you see the apostles doing in Acts. So, let's take an example. Okay. Our culture at the moment, what's it like? Um, It's... A way to describe it would be it's soaked in pragmatism, isn't it? So a motto for our time would be just do it. You know, we don't want to have to think hard, sit down and think, you know, how do we do things? Why are we doing what we're doing? You know, what should we be doing? We just don't want to be thinking about such things. Boring. Let's just do it. And, and, And that flows over into the Christian scene. You just get so many, I've seen this so many times, for example evangelism training courses, and you're thinking, do these guys seriously actually know what the evangel is? They're all being trained about how to be great evangelists, but I don't think they actually know what they're supposed to be saying. That's the sort of danger. So how do we know what gospel we're going to be telling people? You know, are people going to be telling others an existential gospel? You know, Jesus can save your soul when you invite him into your heart. Or is it going to be like the Gnostic gospel? You know, Christians go to heaven forever when they die. Nothing about the new creation or anything. You know, so only theology wrestling with the scriptures is actually going to give us the true gospel and so enable us to do proper evangelism. Only that's going to give us the biblical gospel. So theology 
just could not be more relevant to -to day-to-day living. And to say that theology is irrelevant would be to say that God is a liar by saying that his word does not describe reality. But it does. The theology of our creator God means that, you know, like Solomon, do you remember Solomon? He's got a theology of everything, from the cedar of Lebanon to the little hyssop that grows out of walls. You know, that's what we'll have if we're proper Christian theologians. We'll we'll think through how everything relates to the gospel. So we'll have a theology of eating, a theology of waking up, a theology of going to the loo. You know, we'll have it all. In fact, one of the um, best sermons I heard at college was on a theology of eating. And the guy was doing, you know, how when you eat, you're taking life into yourself so your body can live. And particularly, he was going for, he was on Genesis 9. He was saying how this animal dies so that you can live. So when you eat meat, you're not just receiving meat, you're thinking about the grace of the Lord in it all. That sort of thing. So great theology of eating. Theology of waking up. Each time we wake up, we can be thinking, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Those kind of things. Because we see that creation and redemption aren't separate, split off from each other. So as we wake up each day, we can be thinking of what really waking up is all about. We can be thinking theologically. Theology going to the loo? No, let's um, go to Luther later. Um, Luther is the man on that. Uh, Okay, so good theology is living Christianly. And it is theology, good theology, bad theology, pagan theology, Christian theology, thought-through theology, or assumed theology, that is going to drive how we live day by day. It's going to inform our approach to everything. Okay, so that's the first thing. We are all theologians. Now, the question is, are we up to it? Are we up to the task? And I don't mean that as like a kind of pep talk, like, are we up to it? No, I did just genuinely want to ask, can we actually do it? Is it physically possible? Um, And quite apart from the busyness of life, uh, you must know it. Most people find going to, say, a theology book, they're often a pretty tough read. It's a bit daunting. Usually they're thick, heavy, dusty tomes. You think, oh, man. I've just got far more urgent things that I need to be doing. So it's a difficult thing to get around to doing. And as for the Bible, if you do a degree in biblical studies these days at university, um, you're in for a challenge because you'll very quickly find um, you feel utterly unequipped to be able to understand the Bible because you need to know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, you need to know about postmodern epistemologies, and of course you'll never understand Romans if you haven't got a full grasp on Second Temple Judaism, whatever that is. You know, so very quickly you feel, I can never understand all this, because apart from the Bible, I've got to understand so much else. And so you need a PhD to understand the Bible. But as I say that, I can hear Luther and Calvin doing a steady whine at 90 revs per minute in their graves because that was the sort of thing that would make them physically sick at the thought of. Because this was precisely the sort of thing that the great reformers swept away in the Reformation. Um, See, what Roman Catholicism had been saying was that the Bible is actually nearly impossible to understand. You can understand why Roman Catholicism was saying that, because the Bible wasn't clearly saying what they were saying it said. So, of course, it was going to be hard to understand. And so they were saying, okay, you have to be a priest to be able to understand it, and you stupid masses, you'll never get it. So you need someone to explain it all to you. And they had this committee, you probably know, headed up by the Pope called the Magisterium. And the Magisterium was going to be the interpreter of this very difficult Bible to all the stupid masses who would never understand it. Um, And that was the magisterium of Roman Catholicism. But the reformers swept all that away, seeing it as completely unbiblical. Because in the Bible we see, God wants to be understood. Wow. Oh, gosh. Do you think he's able to do that, to make himself be understood? You know, if he is, that means... The Bible is a clear, simple book. And so, uh, 
and yet that, that seems to just go against so much of what we instinctively think, doesn't it? You know, the Bible is a clear, simple book. Because so often you hear people saying things like, oh, you know, that passage, I, I don't actually think you can understand that passage. It's so difficult. Or, no, I don't think we can really know what that's all about. We'll know perhaps when we get to heaven. We'll know then, but we can't know now. But what do you think Jesus would say to such a thing? What would Jesus say to such a, oh, he can't understand that passage? Think about what he says to people in the Gospels. You know, do do you ever hear him say to the Pharisees, yeah, I see your point in interpreting the law that way. It's a good point. It's a valid reading. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I've just got a different take on it. You've got a certain exegesis. I've got a different one. No, he's just saying, have you not read? You're reading the Bible so wrong, you can't have read it. Or, um, you know, do you remember with um, Nicodemus? And Nicodemus is struggling to understand what it is, you know, what, what's all this being born of the Spirit stuff? And Jesus doesn't go, yeah, it is a tricky one. It is a hard one, I admit. He doesn't. He goes, you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand. So it is utterly condemning. Well, think about his disciples. You know, when they're um, all in doubt that he'd been raised and he says to them, oh, gosh, guys, I'm so sorry. must have been a tough old ride for you. I wish I could have made it just a little bit clearer that things were going to be okay. Not a bit of it. He says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the Scriptures had said. So failure to understand the Bible, the blame for misunderstanding the Bible, lies with us, with our sinful hearts, and not with the Bible itself, which is a clear book. Let's turn to another reference. Deuteronomy 6. This is a great one. Deuteronomy 6. And uh, let's go from verse 6. Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your Bible teachers and your learned PhDs. No. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down. Even when you're lying down in bed, you're talking theology. You know, and when you get up. So the Israelites, they're to teach the scriptures to their children and discuss them you know, over meal times, when they're walking along the road, all that sort of thing. Now, of course, that's only possible if the kids could actually understand them. So if even children can understand Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... Surely anyone can. And and you just look at the scriptures. The rest of the scriptures, they're not addressed to academics or to church leaders generally, but to, or certainly not to Bible college students. You know, most of the epistles in the New Testament, they're written to whole congregations, only a couple written to leaders. And um, think of like the Gentile Christians that Paul's writing to. You know, many of them. So unlikely that have any knowledge of Jewish history or tradition or anything like that. Yet Paul assumes they can understand everything he's saying about the law. Well, they've got the scriptures, haven't they? They can check it out for themselves. Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying that books and commentaries are a bad thing. Come to my study at home, man. You, <laughs> you know I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that with the Spirit, you can understand a passage with the Spirit, you can get into the juiciest, finest theology. You can do it. You don't have to be a specialist. You don't actually need the commentary written by a specialist. Sometimes they can be helpful, sometimes not. And with the Spirit, you can get into that very best theology without any specialist um, training or jargon or anything like that. What I'm saying is we do have the competence to be theologians. So do we have the equipment to study God and reality? Yes, even children do. And actually, if you've ever done kids' work, you'll know this. It's so often, isn't it? Or if you've got kids, so often the kids who are actually the sharpest theologians. I found that in um, doing like question and answer sessions with Sunday schools. And ooh, they can ask just the really, really best questions. They're great to deal with. Um, Karl Barth again. Karl Barth at the end of his life. 
um, was asked what was the one thing he really learned through all his 30 years of really intensive theology every day. And he quoted the kids' song, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Isn't that a great answer? And of course it's right. Um, let's, Let's check out another reference. Let's go to Psalm 119. And let's go from verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they're ever with me. Here we go. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I've kept my feet from every evil path that I might obey your word. I've not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. And that's how he can be wiser than his own teachers. So all of that should be a real encouragement to us. That we have all we need to be able to understand the Bible completely. That doesn't mean, of course, that that saying the Bible is clear and simple doesn't mean it's always going to be obvious and easy. Because we're sinful. But it does mean that we can understand it. You know, and so if we find a bit that is just, we just can't understand it, it just seems a really hard bit, okay, fine, move on to the next bit. Maybe we're not spiritually mature enough for that bit yet. Fine, move on to the next bit, pray for the Spirit's guidance. Next time you read through it, you may actually find it very easy, not a problem. Okay, are we all okay so far? All there, brilliant. Okay, so... If we've got the argument so far, we're all theologians and we can all do it. Fairly simple so far. Um, now, what does that mean in practice then? Well, John Calvin said the axiom of theology is Romans 3 verse 4. He said this is the axiom of theology. Romans 3 verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. Now that means that we must allow the Bible to be our supreme authority. Now, as I say it, I could just feel us all naturally switch off to go, yeah, the Bible's the supreme authority. Of course it is. But, I mean, not just in principle, but letting the Bible compel us to reject revered and assured human wisdom. So, not asking Scripture to fit into our contemporary views of the world, however certain they seem, Um, And that's because no matter how convincing, how definite something seems as a piece of knowledge in our age, there's no guarantee that it's the final truth of the matter, as we will see it when Christ returns. You know, the things that everyone knows, the things that we're told a hard fact. If you study history, I, I did my first degree in history, and you see those things, they just change constantly. So think of... Um, the men of ancient Greece, who are considered to be the wisest men of the ancient world. In ancient Greece, everybody knew, and this is like for hundreds of years, everybody knew that the moon was a cup, and that it went from full-on towards you to sort of half, to then fully cup-shaped. That's why it's a crescent, because it's actually cup-shaped. Everyone knew that. <clears throat> don't, don't dispute it, really. Um, everyone knew that the sun orbited the earth, you, know, you just see these things for hundreds, thousands of years, these things that everyone knows as hard fact. Um, if you look at um, the Egyptians, you know the whole mummification process. Have you ever looked at that at like the British Museum? And they'd stick the skewer into the, into, you know, break the bone at the back of the nose, swizzle the skewer around, basically to mush up all the brain, and then just pour the brain out through the nose. Because... They're going, oh, we want to mummify the body, you know, keep the heart and keep the kidney and the, you know, keep all the bits, but the brain, I'll chuck that, no good, is it? Because you think with your heart. So why bother keeping your brain? Ditch it. You're not going to want that when you're resurrected. Um, Because they are resurrection people, interestingly, the Egyptians, but they have no use for the brain whatsoever. And that's for thousands of years. They go, brain's absolutely useless. You think with your heart and you feel it with your stomach. Um, and actually, there's, um, have you come across a theologian called Jürgen Moltmann, anyone? Um, yeah, a couple of, and he wrote a little paper, I can't remember where it was, where he does a little history of how people get killed in the, in the movies. 
Um, it sounds a bit bizarre, but it's quite cool. <laughs> he says, to start with, you see, like, if you see an early film from the 40s or 50s, plug them in the heart, and they're out like a lamp. You know, so shoot them in the chest where the heart is, and you'll kill them. But, of course, in the last sort of, 10 years or so, you can machine gun them. You know, six heavy plugs with a magnum in the heart, and they'll be right as rain, not a problem. Plug them in the head, then they're dead. And so it's just a, a, a changing perception of how the body is, even within the last two generations or so. And he says, what would it be in 50 years' time? Well, you have to shoot someone then. You know, will it be in their toe? <gasps> oh, it would be dead now. You shot them in the toe. You know, so all these things that are assured assured um, knowledge of how reality is. They change the whole time. It's just we're so shallow, we feel the theories of the last 20 years, oh, it must be indubitable fact. No, the faithful Christian is going to have no confidence in humanity and its latest ideas, but is always, with stubborn tenacity, going to keep saying, yes, but what does the Bible actually say? And we're particularly suspicious when someone says, uh, of course, you know, everyone knows that, whatever. Because that's when the biggest mistakes are made, when everyone knows something. So we're not going to try to fit the Bible in neatly. Because we know that scripture does not seek to fit into our world, but to turn it upside down, to transform it. And that's just stuff we all know, isn't it? That in doing a Bible study, you look for the surprise, the bit that doesn't fit, the bit that's awkward. You know, if you just read it and go, yeah, yeah, I know all that. Well, you don't. You've clearly not understood that passage. But not only that, we not only refuse to trust the wisdom of our age in doing theology, we also refuse to trust our own common sense. That's the problem for us when we become Christians, that we bring with us so much intellectual baggage from where we've come from that means that too often our thinking is based on common sense or Christian urban legend, rather than on scripture. And so you get huge problems coming out of that. And yet, common sense is a very slippery thing, which we need to regard with great suspicion. And think about the Old Testament. Old Testament, it was common sense to the nations surrounding Israel that there are many gods and that they are honoured through sexual immorality. Obviously, of course, common sense. Um, In the New Testament times, with the Greeks, it was common sense that there was a supreme being who wanted nothing at all to do with the physical world. This world must be very morally questionable. Common sense. Today, it is common sense that all religions are equally true. And let's not get started on what is common sense in Christian circles. So, following Jesus and repenting of our various forms of cultural idolatry, loving the Lord with our mind is going to mean abandoning the wisdom of the world and our common sense and leaning wholly upon God's revelation of how things actually are, of how reality really is. And that's um, really bound up with the, the Bible's word for repentance. You probably know the Bible's word for repentance, metanoia, is a word about knowing. It's, a, it's about a change of mind. And so it's about letting God's word judge everything we think so that we assess our culture, our common sense, everything we think. We assess what theologians say. Um, We assess evangelical tradition, theological assumptions. We assess them all by it. And then we just go as happy fools into the world, armed only with scripture and without any wisdom of the world. Okay, That is the revolution. That is theology. What I thought we'd do is we'd wrap up my little introduction to this session before we have a little discussion about things um, with a few little guiding thoughts on practically how to go about the revolution. First of all, go into Market Harbour and torch it. (laughs) Secondly, no, uh, okay, first thing, of course, is to actually do it, is to actually do theology. And this is just such an obvious point that we always are putting aside the important things because of the urgent things. So we're not actually researching reality, retuning our lives in the light of it, you know, looking to Christ and looking to know him because we've got to write that talk now, haven't we? Because just something comes up that takes its place. So we've got to actually be doing it. That's the first tip on actually joining the revolution, doing theology. But 
assuming that we are doing theology, we need to know it is of the essence of good theology to be shocking, disturbing, and confrontational. I don't mean rude, but confrontational. Because the word first confronts us as an offensive message about our sin and need of salvation, doesn't it? That tells you instantly the nature of theology. And it disturbs us from the grave of our sin. And so theology is like the uncomfortable process of plowing our hearts and minds. So you overturn with the plow of the Bible our hardened hearts and minds, our presuppositions and assumptions. We overturn it so as to plant new seed there. So it's going to be unsettling and challenging if it's a theology of this this word. And that's why when I meet someone who's bored of theology, who's stagnant, or someone who feels they've got it all sorted, or someone who uses lots of Christian jargon, I really worry. Because... They can't be doing theology of this disturbing and strange word. Someone who's just adding tidbits to a theological system that they've already got sorted can't be doing theology of this. They can't be engaging with this living Bible. See, as soon as you're just buying into and thinking that some little human system of theology has got the whole package, well, you're going to get bored Because if you think some human package, some human system of theology is it, you're going to be able to master it because it's just a human system. And so you'll think, well, that's it. And you'll think you're very clever for knowing it all. Um, I've been there, done that. And that is the sure way to pride and boredom and stagnation. And so we should never seek simply to accommodate what we learn, new information, into a system that we've already built. It's why I don't like the phrase systematic theology, if you've heard of the phrase systematic theology. Um, It used to be just called Christian doctrine. But systematic theology suggests we should build a system of knowledge. I think, no, no, no. Everything we know should constantly be at the mercy of the Bible to be questioned. Everything. So the Bible is our rock-solid foundation. Everything changes on that. Because... Doing theology is about change, it's about growth, it's about repentance. And that is knowing the living God through his living word. And otherwise we're just studying our own little thoughts about God, rather than studying the living God himself. Here's what the um, Dutch theologian Hendrikus Burkhoff said. He said, The lowest reaches of hell are reserved for theologians who are more interested in their own thoughts about God than God himself. So there is no room for stagnation with the theology of the Bible. And so we do theology with great expectation and anticipation, knowing that we're really ignorant. We are really ignorant, and we will have got things really wrong. However much we think we've got things right, we will have got things really wrong. But it's all there in the Bible. So how do we make sure we don't go stale? Well, one thing is to dig for ourselves. I think we have a tendency to go stale in doing theology because we feed ourselves on stale theology. We feed ourselves on someone else's hand-me-downs. You know, so, you know how this is. You know, we're a name-dropping culture, aren't we? So we always, we're really interested in what the big guns say. So, oh, what does Stott say about this? What does Carson say about this? But to swallow what anyone says wholesale without checking it for mould first, well, that's the surefire road to stagnation, going stale, or food poisoning. So we must always be hankering for fresh fare in theology. And, And I don't mean just always gagging for titillating novelties. No, we should be hunting around scripture ourselves for fresh deeper understandings of the gospel. And we can, because the simplicity of the Bible means we can do that. So dig for yourself. But something else I'd recommend. Make sure you're always looking at something that's utterly irrelevant. All right? In doing theology, always look for something that's completely irrelevant. Now, I don't mean going back to Adam's belly button and spending all your time on that. What I mean is that 
we live in such a rushed, pragmatic age. Um, you know, so, okay, so the women's issue comes up. You know, what kind of ministries can women do? And so we rush out to buy a book on what kind of ministries can women do? Or we've got some talk to prepare, and so we just buy a book that's directly on that or check out some website that's just on that little issue. It's fast food theology. You'll never grow on it. And without, for example, we'll see this during this week, without pondering deeply on the Trinity, you'll never come up with anything more than the shallowest answers to what ministries can women do. You'd have to look at the deep issues of the Trinity first. And without thinking through those deep things that don't seem instantly applicable, we're just going to be the little proof texters that no one's going to take seriously. And that is how the Bible works. If you think about how the Bible works, it's not loaded up with applications. You read through the Old Testament and you see page after page after page of genealogies, histories, stuff written to priests or kings but not written to us. Oh, is that a problem? And we can think, oh, we better quickly make up some application so it is to us. Well, no, but maybe the lesson is stop obsessing with yourself. Actually, you should be obsessing with Christ because it's not meaning to tell you to do things. It's meaning you to think about Christ and not about yourself. And you see that in the New Testament too when you think about, um, say, the book of Acts. Not one application in the entire book. Nowhere are you told, for example, do evangelism. Now, it might be an application somewhere, but you're not told that. So we're to sort of stave off these instant pragmatic implications to think through, actually, there could be something much deeper going on. With the book of Acts, I think there is. That's good theology. Looking away from ourselves and obsessing with Christ. It may look irrelevant and impractical. It actually won't be. So don't be bored. Hunt for fresh stuff and go for the irrelevant, because it never will be. Um, and last thing, you've got to have a laugh. Um, to do good theology, you've got to have a laugh. Um, you know, as evangelicals, we do a lot of fighting for truth. And when you fight, you can forget it. But actually, if you're not having a laugh when doing theology, you ain't doing it right. And I say that seriously because here's the danger. When you don't take the living God seriously, you start to take yourself too seriously. And that's when you start um, losing it. You lose the entire agenda of the gospel. And, and you must have seen this. I think this is one of the most off-putting things people find about theology. They meet the pompous theologian who can recite the entire Westminster Confession by heart. You know, oh man! And he knew he only learnt it by heart so that he could know it by heart and tell you that. And you think, oh, get a girlfriend. You know, really, there are, there are better things in life. You know, uh, it is usually the blokes who are like that. You know, so doing theology is all about change and growth, finding that you've got it wrong. And so if you can't laugh as you learn and find that you've got it wrong, you're just going to cry at how much you've got things wrong. And when we stop doing the real theology of the gospel of grace, then we forget that grace and we shoulder the burdens ourselves. And then instead of chuckling at how absurdly good the gospel is, we start to become dourly earnest. And gospel theology is about placing our faith in Jesus Christ afresh each day. And that's why we then discover the liberation that that is. We're filled with joy so that Paul can write as a command in 1 Thessalonians, be joyful, always command, you must be joyful. Because if you're not being joyful, you've forgotten the gospel. Remember the gospel and you will be filled with joy. Uh, Nehemiah comes up on it, doesn't he? In Nehemiah 8, a key theme of joy. So joy in theology pops all arrogance and religiosity. Well, let's, let's finish then this little introduction with that joker Martin Luther. Because, as a great theologian, he understood this very well. Martin Luther, he, um, ex-monk, of course, um, so he lived in his old monastery. And a load of the other ones had moved out, but he sneakily stayed 
And so he had basically the whole monastery to himself and his family and his he had five kids, a dog, but a cattle, all that kind of stuff. And um, he had this big converted monastery. In the monastery, he had his own brewery. He had his own bowling alley. Um, he loved his wife's brews, he said. He repeatedly refers to how tasty the latest brew is. And he loved bowling. In fact, it's said that he's the guy who standardized the modern rules of bowling. Yeah, Luther, he had his own bowling alley. Um, anyway, what, much of the Reformation in Germany came from Luther inviting people to stay for supper, to stay for the night, to stay for a couple of weeks. And what they do is, over supper or whilst having a little game, they chat theology, just in a very open, natural way. And sometimes it would be the theology of justification. Sometimes it would be the theology of farting. It would be also because theology is all about all of life. And he saw that. And he took joy in it, an everyday joy. And that's where I think we should leave it this morning. Excitement at the gospel and at all we could still learn. Humility to change and joy. Because those are the marks of really good theology. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalisation. And Newton House, Oxford, invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of union and support our ministry, visit www.theola.gy